My name is Matt Moran. We'll be working through Acts 25 and 26 today. Okay. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. How often do you find yourself saying that? If you're like me, the answer is often, because my time is precious, and I need to guard it. I need to use it wisely, and I'm very aware of who or what might be stealing my time. This week, I was at the mobile station on the corner of Main Street and Grove, and I had to go inside to pay for something, which I don't like because I don't have time for that, and I would rather pay at the pump. And I had to go in, and then I had to wait in line. And when it was my turn, I had to give my debit card to the cashier. And she took my card, and then she looked down and finished her text message conversation. And then she took her, my card and slowly swiped it. And I thought, what are you doing? I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that type of nonsense. One night recently, my wife Laurel was out, and I was going through the whole bedtime routine with our three kids alone. So we went through the whole, the whole routine, the bathroom, the pajamas, the toothbrushing, the Bible, prayer, song, story. Everyone's tucked in, and the light's going out. And you know, if you have little kids, that they have this magical and mysterious ability to identify something that they need right in that second between the light goes out, when the light goes out and the door is closed. And what's even more mysterious about it is that it's always something that's missing. It's not actually in the room, whatever that thing is. And one night, everything was done. On this night, everything was done. And Zoe said she'd lost her blanket. Well, you know, she's not going to sleep without that blanket. So simple enough, I'll get the blanket. Except we couldn't find the blanket. It, it wasn't anywhere, right? So we live in a tiny house, and it literally wasn't anywhere. I'd gone through all the rooms in the house, and I looked for five whole minutes and nothing. And I suspect that I'm not the only person in the room who loves their kids and looks forward to when they go to bed. And I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember what incredibly important thing that I had to do once they were down. But I was, I'm sure that I was looking forward to some peace and quiet that I was going to have to myself. But in just like a second... My interior dialogue went from just mellow and peaceful to, oh, so I guess that's what I'm going to be doing today, looking for a blanket. And for a second, like I felt this rage come up inside of me, and I thought that I might punch a light fixture. And why was I so upset? It's because I'm very important, and I don't have time for that. I can't be looking for blankets all day. So what happens when your plans get foiled? What happens when, for some reason, your plans for doing great and good and noble things get stopped? And what happens when it's not a petty example like my five or ten minutes, but it's actually like days and weeks and years? And instead, your agenda, which might even be great and noble and inspired by the Spirit of God, gets wrapped up in these forces that are outside of your control. What happens then? So what happens with the wasted time? or the wasted days and years. And I don't mean the wasted time because of our own sloth or laziness. I mean, like, you might be spending hours and hours and hours, week after week, caring for someone who is elderly or infirm that cannot thank you anymore. You might be so immersed in taking care of young children that at the end of the day, you think, I literally have no idea what happened today. 
you might be looking at your career and thinking, I'm trying to do my best, but this is not what I had in mind. This is absolutely not what I thought I would, what I thought I would be doing with my life. What happens with all that wasted time? Okay, so our text today in Acts 25 and 26 is going to get at that, the heart of those questions. What happens with the wasted days and the wasted years? So let me pray. Let's ask God for help, and we will dig into God's word together. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We want to come underneath it right now and receive it for what it is, your words of life to us, strength and truth. We want to love your word and be strengthened by it, be changed by it. So we ask for your spirit to give us hearts to obey and that you would make my words clear to strengthen your people. We pray for that. Amen. Okay, so as we've progressed through the book of Acts, the hero, the protagonist has been the Apostle Paul, right? Paul comes onto the scene in Acts chapter 7. He meets Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And from then on, it's just like a rush of activity. It's nonstop gospel expansion with Paul and the apostles spearheading that work. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, the gospel just keeps moving relentlessly from Jerusalem towards the ends of the earth. And by Acts 25, where we are today, Paul is about a 60-year-old man, but he has no intention of slowing down. There is still more work to do, and he's fired up to do it. Paul has this important vision or plan for his life. In the letter to the Romans, he wrote, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been preached, not where he's already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's Paul's plan, and that is ambitious, right? His mission is to preach the gospel where it's not been preached. He wants to pioneer new works, And he wants to see the gospel of Jesus take root where it has not yet been seen or believed. So we're dealing with someone in Paul that we could describe as a driven, intense, ambitious individual. I suspect that if you told Paul, hey, Paul, we're going to hang out this weekend. We're going to grill some kebabs and watch the gladiators. Paul would say, I don't have time for that. That's not what Paul does. He's busy. He's intense. But now, when we get to the end of the book, as, we're in cha- as we are in chapter 25, everything is slowing down to a crawl. The rapid gospel expansion of the whole middle of this book is giving way to monotony and tedium. The pace starts to slow down in chapter 23. Paul gets put on trial in front of some religious leaders because supposedly he's been spotted with a Gentile inside the Jewish temple, which is a big problem. The trial does not lead to a clear resolution, so Paul gets transferred over to Caesarea, where he can sit on trial number two with Felix. In chapter 24, Felix hears the whole story, and the text says he put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. Felix is aware enough to know that Paul did not do anything wrong, but he's reluctant to take a stand with Paul's Jewish enemies, so he delays the whole process. Meanwhile, he's kind of personally intrigued by what Paul's saying, and he's also in the back of his mind hoping that there might be a bribe in play here. So 
he thinks there's a possibility that he might get some money out of the whole thing. So he kind of milks the situation. He keeps visiting Paul, and the text says he sent for him often, and they converse, they talk. So they're talking, they're talking. At the end of chapter 4, at the end of chapter 24, Luke has this incredible note. After two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years, two whole years, Paul's just sitting there. What have they been talking about? Felix has been wasting Paul's time for two years. Chapter 24 is peppered with all these phrases of delay. He put them off, go away for the present, when I get an opportunity. That's the language that Felix talks about. Delay, 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 two years go by. So Paul, the super apostle, has become the victim of inefficiency, incompetence, cowardice to make a decision, political maneuvering. It looks like Paul is kind of a pawn in this chess game between the Roman officials and the Jewish religious authorities. But chapter 25, good news, Festus is coming. Maybe we'll get someone in there who's better. Paul can get out, get on with his life, get on with the mission. That's where we are today in Acts chapter 25. What we have here is an innocent man. He's a victim of a religious dispute in custody for a crime that can't really be described. So Festus rolls in, and he meets with some leading Jewish religious leaders, and they address the whole Paul situation. They say, hey, can you send him up to Jerusalem and we'll give him a trial there? Because they have this plan to ambush him and kill him. Probably this is the same crew that in chapter 23 plotted to ambush and kill Paul, and they got foiled by a little boy. Festus is new to the whole scene, so he doesn't grasp how evil their intentions are. So he says, well, actually, I'm on my way up to Caesarea. You guys should come with. That's not what they had in mind, but they're kind of, they're kind of stopped in their tracks by that. They can't really tell Festus what they had up their sleeve. So they say, all right, we'll go up with you to Caesarea. Their plans are foiled again. Paul's being protected. So Luke notes that Festus stays in Jerusalem for eight or ten days, again, noting the dragging of time. Finally, they get to Caesarea. Trial number three happens. Paul stands before Festus. If you're Paul, you're hoping for some resolution, right? New guy's in charge. Now I'm going to get a trial. Let's get out of here. Let's get on with it. Instead, same old, same old. Chapter 25 says, When he had arrived, the Jews who came down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Same thing. They bring the accusations. Paul defends himself. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Have I committed any offense? Festus listens. He's naive about these religious disputes. He doesn't really grasp the murderous intentions of Paul's opponents. And he wishes to do the Jews a favor and gain some political points with them. So instead of saying, get out of my court, I don't even, get out of here. He says to Paul, do you want to be tried in Jerusalem? Paul wants no part of that. He's thinking, of course I don't want that. I want this to be over with, not go to Jerusalem. He understands the seriousness of his enemies. So the whole situation stinks. And he says to Festus, to the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know. There's there's this awareness in Paul, like, this whole situation is bogus. You know I haven't done anything wrong. But his innocence is not going to be granted, so he appeals to Caesar. Paul has this ace up his sleeve, and he appeals to Rome using his Roman citizenship 
as a way to get him sent to Rome instead of Jerusalem. Festus confers with his council, and he says, okay, you're going to Rome. He doesn't want to deal with the situation. He sees no actual problem or actual crime that's been committed, but he doesn't want to anger the Jewish religious authorities by letting him go. So he says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. The problem is, Festus has to actually have something to tell Caesar. Uh, if he just sends Paul to Rome, it looks like he's just sort of shirking his responsibilities. This would be like just passing something up the chain of authority to your boss that your boss doesn't want to deal with. So it would look bad because he can't even really characterize the crime that's been committed. Fortunately for Festus, Agrippa and Bernice are coming to town. And Agrippa has some expertise in Jewish religious issues. He's familiar with Jewish religious disputes in a way that Festus is not because he rules over the temple in Jerusalem. So Luke says, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and they greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Some days, many days, Paul is slowly rotting away while this whole, this whole situation resolves itself. And Festus says, hey, Agrippa, I want to pick your brain about this thing. So who is Agrippa? I'm sorry for the Bible trivia in this sermon. Um, Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II, son of Herod Agrippa I, great-grandson of Herod the Great. Agrippa's father, Herod I, had James the Apostle killed earlier in this book. Agrippa's great-grandfather, Herod the Great, we know from the Christmas story in Matthew 2. He is the one that tried to have Jesus extinguished and in that work killed all the babies in Jerusalem that were two years old and younger. This is a murderous line of rulers. Festus explains to Agrippa that they've already had a trial, but it wasn't what he expected. None of the wrongdoings that I would normally expect were listed. Instead, he says, this is a religious dispute about whether a man called Jesus is actually alive or not. Agrippa's kind of intrigued by this. He's saying, you're saying that he died, but Paul says he's alive. He wants to hear this story. Chapter 25, verse 23 says, On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So we need to feel, we need to visualize this scene. Agrippa and Bernice come into the hall with great pomp. Important people are in the house. Paul cannot come until he's called. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And when he enters, he's an old man and he's likely in chains. Paul's entrance is the opposite of great pomp. This is his fourth trial. He's 60. There's no reason to be confident in the system if you're Paul or the idea that he's going to get justice if he just waits long enough. It would appear that his personal plan to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is at a stalemate. And in chapter 26, when this trial starts, this trial is totally pointless, at least as far as Paul is concerned. This is just deep background for Agrippa to get to hear the situation so that Festus can piece something together so that he can tell Caesar so Paul can get another trial. It's now the fourth trial for Paul. He's in a situation that's dragged on for years, and by number four, there's not even a clear path to resolution. 
You can imagine what his attitude might be at this point. And after the fanfare, Paul finally gets a chance to speak. This is what Paul says. He details his past life as a devout Jew, and he describes his total opposition to Jesus. Paul says, I was myself convinced that I had to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. Convinced. That was me. Then, on my way to Damascus, carrying out my commission to stop the followers of Jesus, I met Jesus on the road. And Paul retells his heavenly vision. He says, I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I can tell you this, the resurrection is real. And Jesus is real. And people need to repent and to turn from God. And that is what I've devoted my life to proclaiming. Paul says from then on, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I've been devoting my life to making Jesus known. I'm telling everyone, every nationality, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. And then he says, it's for this reason that I have been detained. I was seized in the temple and my opponents tried to kill me. But actually, all of this is in keeping with the Old Testament scriptures that they claim to believe. Because the Old Testament scriptures promised that a Christ would come and suffer and die. And that he would rise from the dead and proclaim forgiveness of sins. There is hope in Jesus. Paul says all that, and he finally pauses, and I don't think anyone in the big hall was expecting a sermon from the old man in chains. And as Paul was saying these things, Festus bursts in, and his response is embarrassment. He thinks he's brought Paul, he brought Agrippa in here to listen to this religious fanatic. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. He's saying, Paul, too much school is making you stupid. This is, you're nuts. What are you talking about? And Paul looks at him with calm and with conviction. And he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king, Agrippa, knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his attention, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa sort of jokes to get out of an uncomfortable situation. You can sense that the tables have been turned a little bit. You get the sense that he might be coming under conviction a little bit. He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, you just told me this and you want a response right now? And Paul says, whether short or long, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but everyone here in this hall would become like me, except for these chains. So whether short or long, Paul's saying, you want to believe Christ right now? Let's do that. You want to think and talk about it some more? Okay, let's do that. But let's pause the story right here and ask, how was Paul so faithful? He was getting shafted for two plus years. Had Paul learned some sort of positive self-talk to get him through those dark days of imprisonment? Had he achieved some sort of detachment where he would sit there and just think, whatever will be, will be? No. It was not about positivity or self-help. 
Paul had rock-solid, historical confidence in the life and death of Christ. He knew that Jesus was with him because he had personally experienced the resurrection. So as I'm moving a little bit now towards practical application, let me ask you this. Is it good for us to be ambitious and to plan for the future? The answer is yes. But at the same time, we need to remember people like us who have life plans, who have specific goals, who have concrete expectations for what the future will hold, we need to remember that our capacity to bring glory to Christ is not context-specific. And by that I mean your career plans may not work out. Your financial plans may not work out. Your relationship plans may not work out. And you may spend large chunks of your life, like Paul did, seemingly wasting your time. That does not limit our capacity to bring glory to Christ. And here's what I mean. Three specific points of application from this passage as we look at Paul and his wasted years. Number one, this passage should check our self-importance. The same attitude that I had with my kids at bedtime, the same attitude that I have antsy in line, impatient in conversation. If Paul thought that the mission of God actually rested on him, he would have responded to his captivity with huge depression. Who in all of Christian history is more important than Paul? And yet the Spirit saw fit for Paul to sit in jail for over two years. That should check our self-importance. And that should make us humble. Secondly, we should have a confidence that God is working out his plan. I imagine that years of captivity gave Paul ample opportunity to second-guess himself. He could have thought, maybe I should never have visited that temple that started this whole thing in the first place. Maybe I should have kept a lower profile. Maybe I should have just stayed and parked out in one of those cities where I was so fruitful in ministry. See, we aren't talking about issues of sin or bad judgment. We're talking about the types of lives that each one of us live. Life outside the garden where we make choices and we get disappointed. Paul could have sat in his cell and thought, these incompetent politicians, they are foiling the advance of the gospel. Do we think that God is somehow incapacitated by corrupt or incompetent politicians? He is not. Do we think that God needs me to accomplish his redemptive purposes? He doesn't. Humility about our self-importance and confidence that God is accomplishing his redemptive purposes should combine together to lead us to my third point of application. Those qualities should blend together, humility and confidence in God, and we see that no, God doesn't need us, and yes, nothing, nothing is going to stop the redemptive purposes of God. But we get to participate in that with hope, with patience, with eagerness, with joy. So the third point of application is this, a willingness to love short or to love long. Paul could have looked at this trial and said, I shouldn't even be here. Why do I have to defend myself? I feel like I'm repeating myself. Did you not write this down? 
He could have been offended by the ostentatious display of power from Agrippa and Bernice. He could have been scared. After all, Festus responded by thinking he was out of his mind. Instead, we see Paul, patient, trusting, hopeful, bold. And he tells Agrippa, he tells the whole room, whether short or long, my hope, my prayer is that you know Christ. He knows that God is sovereign, but God is not aloof. God is actively engaged in the business of saving sinners, and we get to be part of that. You would think that the Christian story here is at a stalemate with Paul imprisoned. Paul's stuck. This trial is not moving the ball down the field for Paul. And really, on a global scale, Christianity is a very, very obscure religion with a minute number of followers at this point in the first century. But Paul knows something as he stands before the earthly powers, before the great-grandson of the one who tried to murder Jesus. He knows what he wrote in another letter. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So the work of grace in your life might appear like a tiny, tiny spark. You might have seen only the tiniest flickers of faith in your children. You might have prayed for years for a friend or for a loved one to believe the gospel and only seen one small sign of hope. You might even feel like the hourglass in your life is like the sand just slipping away. But the work that God is doing often has very, very small beginnings. It doesn't look impressive on the outside. But what if God is so sovereign and so powerful that he is redeeming the wasted years? What if God is so sovereign and powerful that he's at work at all times in all things for our good and for our sanctification? Well, how does Paul's story end? In chapter 26, there's no resolution, except that Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice all confer, and they look at each other behind closed doors, and they say behind closed doors what they couldn't say out loud. This man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. So for Paul, it's off to Rome, and he's going to have to endure an arduous journey by ship to get there. So there's no resolution, as far as we can see in this chapter, unless we zoom out and we say, that God is orchestrating seemingly haphazard events to carry the gospel to the ends of the known world. Through the seemingly random events of Paul's life, the missionary structure of the book of Acts Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, is actually being played out. Paul is off to Rome, where he will get a chance to declare the gospel again, which is at that point the ends of civilization. God is redeeming the wasted years. God is at work in the prison cell. That gives us humility, gives us confidence, gives us hope, gives us the power to love other people in the name of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful and we thank you that you have the power to redeem the wasted years and the wasted time. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who may be feeling stuck or feeling as though the things that they do are not important or meaningful or what they intended. I pray that you would give them humility, 
but also a deep confidence that you are accomplishing your, your purposes, that you would give us the willingness inspired by your life and your resurrection to love others long and short. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.